Good Bone Health makes active aging possible. Join us for inspiring conversations from diverse perspectives in osteoporosis from patients, healthcare providers, caregivers, policymakers, researchers, advocates, and innovators. Protect your ability to live your best life. The information and opinions expressed in Bone Talk are not intended to replace the services of trained and qualified health professionals or to be a substitute of medical advice of physicians. You may review the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation's full medical disclaimer at bonehealthandosteoporosis.org. Hi everyone, welcome to Bone Talk. I'm Claire Gill, CEO of the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation. Joining me today is Dr. Rodrigo Valderrobano, an endocrinologist and assistant professor of medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical School. At Harvard, he is also the medical director for the research program in men's health, aging, and metabolism, where he oversees and conducts research on function promoting therapies, including exercise in men and women. Dr. Valderrobano has a clinical and research focus on metabolic bone disease. During his time as a research fellow at Stanford University, he was awarded the Endocrine Society's Outstanding Abstract Award and the American Society for Bone and Mineral Research's Young Investigator Award. At the University of Miami, Dr. Valderrobano was the director of the Endocrinology Division's Bone Clinic with a focus on osteoporosis and other metabolic bone diseases. The ultimate goal of his research efforts includes further delineating treatable risk factors for osteoporosis and devising non-pharmacological treatment strategies for osteoporosis, such as rehabilitation and exercise. Dr. Valderrobano, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for that introduction, Claire, and thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. We have so much to cover, and I'm particularly interested, um, as we've said, about your research into men's health and osteoporosis, which sometimes people forget. We say it over and over again at BHOF, but sometimes people don't remember that this is not just a woman's disease, but that men are impacted by osteoporosis and bone loss as well. And that up to one in four men over the age of 50 will break a bone due to osteoporosis in their lifetime. So I know that when we talk to men and women about the disease, we're kind of talking very similar things, but let's kind of go through what might be the same and different for men as you're evaluating them for osteoporosis. So what are some of the risk factors and causes of osteoporosis in men? Well, that's a great question, Claire. I always like to think about, you know, I like to strategize and, and think of things in big umbrellas. And I think, you know, for both men and women, there's really two big ways of getting osteoporosis. One is not ever reaching your kind of genetic peak bone density. That's the highest bone density you would get to in your lifetime. So if you never get to a high bone density, your bones never get thick, then you have kind of less wiggle room, less bone density to lose before you become osteoporotic and you're kind of in a critical situation where your bones might break. You know, the second way to get osteoporosis in both men and women is achieving a, a good peak bone density and then somehow losing it. Now, people don't think about this in men as much because men don't have kind of an on-off switch, you know, something really obvious that happens like women do. So women undergo menopause, and then after menopause, because of the loss of estrogen, there is a loss in bone. For men, there is no event that really delineates when they start losing bone. But we know that as men get older, they also have accelerated bone loss. So 
when we talk about risk factors, we're thinking about in these two broad categories. Number one, what could make it so that you don't have a good peak bone density? And that could be anything from, you know, not being sick as a kid. So lots of diseases, including diabetes, type 1, any kind of diabetes that affects your gastrointestinal system where you're not absorbing nutrients correctly can lead to a lack of good peak bone density. So uh, nutrition and also exercise in childhood is extremely important. You know, you don't use it, you lose it. So if you never stimulate the bone, it won't ever get that signal to increase. So that's really important. So those are the kind of things that we're thinking about in terms of peak bone density. And then essentially when we're talking about losing bone density, a lot of stuff comes into play. You know, your your family history is important in terms of your your genetic capacity to have good bone density. But, you know, multiple medications can harm bone. The big bad that we usually think of are are glucocorticoids, so stuff like prednisone, cortisone, all these things, you know, chronically can lead to, you know, are are very bad for bone and can lead to accelerated bone loss. Habits like uh, smoking, you know, if people need another reason not to smoke, it accelerates bone loss. Chronic alcohol can also lead to accelerated bone loss. And people kind of try and haggle with me, you know, how, how much alcohol could I have? People have tried to get at that, but I think in general, if you're drinking every day, you know, and especially after the pandemic, a lot of people have gotten into that habit, do a little bit less. Yeah. You know, if you can reduce, then, then that helps. We said uh, we have on our, on our website something that says no more than two to three alcoholic beverages a day before it starts to cause bone loss. And I've often said, if you're drinking more than two to three a day, you have a bigger problem than osteoporosis. <laughs> Maybe you need to. That's right. That's right. Then you're, you're using it as okay. yeah. you know, a coping mechanism. Um, so all these things it will affect. And then specifically in men, testosterone levels are very important. You know, testosterone levels can decline over time as well. There are several uh, conditions which can lead to lower testosterone levels. And that is very similar to the trigger in women with estrogen levels. So if you do get low testosterone levels, it's exactly the same situation as if you were in menopause. And actually, when we give medications for prostate cancer, when we're totally knocking out testosterone, it's a very similar situation to when we give medications in, for example, breast cancer, where we're trying to totally knock out estrogen. So really, these sex hormones are what help maintain our bones. So that's really important as well. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, and I know that that played a part into why it happens later for men, that they hold on to their testosterone for most longer than women do. But I was wondering if that was, if it was the same thing or if it was, you know, since we all have a little bit of estrogen and progesterone and testosterone in us, was it that they're, the loss of the estrogen in men, like is it only estrogen that is the bone builder, but it is testosterone too? Well, that's a great question, and, and that's a, you know, there's complicated answers to that. So it looks like you're right. The effector for on bone is actually estrogen, but the source of estrogen in men is testosterone. So if testosterone levels are low, estrogen levels tend to be low as well. You know, our group is actually looking a lot into how sex hormone binding globulin, which is the carrier of testosterone and estrogen in our blood, uh, functions. And actually, uh, you know, I can just give a little teaser. It really depends on 
it can be different depending on the concentration of different hormones in your body. So your body will ha hang on to estrogen or testosterone depending on the on the different concentrations of each. So it's complicated. Yeah. But uh, I think in general, we can think of testosterone as, as being the temperature or, or the thermostat yeah. for men, even though the effector, you're right, is estrogen. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I went to a conference recently the, for the Global Consortium on Reproductive Aging and Longevity. And so oh. part of that was talking about the role of estrogen for women in preventing disease long term. You know, and again, the role of menopause and is menopause something that is biologically necessary given we're the only, you know, only human with females and a couple species of whales actually experience it. But then also, again, just for both sexes, the sexual hormones and how much of a role that plays in our overall health. And it's fascinating. And I'm delighted that it's starting to be studied more. So I really see that as an area that will, as, you know, will take off as far as research and medicine. And there's so much yet that we still have to learn about how those, those you know, hormones impact our, our overall health. It's really fascinating. So I don't diverge a little bit on this conversation about men, but it's really, it is interesting. And then again, it gets to yeah, it why people think this is a women's disease and it's, and it's not. It's just the way our hormones, you know, build bone or detract from the bone. Yeah, and it's kind of a little unfair, right? That women undergo menopause and, and that's supposed to be kind of natural and some people have this gut reaction to not use estrogen or, or to not even think about yeah. replacing that. It's not really fair. You know, there are so many things that we do that are kind of not natural but are good for health overall. So I don't know. I mean, I think sex hormones are extremely important for bone health and for many other aspects of health. And, you know, in the right clinical circumstances, we should consider them all. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, really good habit. So also, let's talk a little bit now about men getting diagnosed. So again, because we have women approaching menopause, the conversation happens earlier. But when should a healthy, let's say a healthy man who does not have a history, perhaps, of osteoporosis in his family, when, when is a normal age for a man to get their bone density screened? That's a great point, Claire. You know, so, and it really is as physicians, we also kind of, uh, sometimes we see a healthy man and it just does not compute and, and we don't ask for it. So all men should get screened at 70 years of age. You know, uh, most societies are in concordance with that. But there should be a very, and I really push this on in any medium I can, there should be a really low bar for us to screen really anyone, you know, a bone density scan is a really low risk, quick and easy thing to do. It's widely available and it can give us a lot of valuable information, you know. So I would say I totally agree with this cutoff of, of at 70, every, every man should get a bone density. But if you have a, you know, if you've had a fracture and it doesn't seem like, you know, the force, it seems weird. Uh, you know, the force that, that it took to break something is kind of off. If you even, you know, if that suspicion even comes through your head, let's get a bone density. It takes five to 10 minutes. It's really easy thing to do. Yeah. And a lot of the time is I was talking with another organization about how they promote prostate screening and they do it to women. 
because the women are going to make their husbands and their partners go. <laughs> That's a great so idea. Kind of like this, right? There's a lot of listeners uh, to this podcast, but if you are the wife, mother, partner of a man who, uh, you know, has fallen or has some of these other risk factors we've already just discussed, it's really important that you, you suggest to them that they talk to their doctor about it. So we're, we're talking to women and men today, even though we're That's focused right. on men in osteoporosis. And does the FRAX tool that we use to sometimes look at the risk, the fracture risk for uh, patients over the long term, is it variable for men and women? Is, is just sex put in as, or gender rather, put in as one of the variables? Is there anything else different about it? No, yeah. So, it, you know, sex is put in as a variable, and that's important so that it'll also calculate the uh, bone mineral density appropriately. And there are kind of separate data sets where this information has has come to light, you know, for men and women. But it's a really useful tool, and it's just as useful in men as it is in women. You know, depending on the country you're from, there may be more information on men or women in there, but you will get a result that you can use clinically no matter where you're from. So I think that, and then the is, same that's a great... Bone density. The men, men go through the same process in a bone density test that women do? Absolutely. You know, and so the bone density is exactly the same. You know, you, you get on the machine, it goes zoom, zoom, and you're done. <laughs> you know, a little positioning and, and you're done. It is not time consuming and uh, it, it is the same for men and women. So, you know, if you have a, a married partner of the opposite sex, you can guys can go together yeah, and do the bone like density. Couples massage. Actually, We're saying couples that's stuff. right. That's how we have to promote this. That would be great. I always say that, as well, you said, I, I, I haven't had my bone density test myself, although I'm coming up to that. And But my mom, I went with her for hers, and I was really amazed how simple the test was. And so I was joking about with friends and, and colleagues at, at BHOF about, you know, we should tell women that it hurts and it's really, really painful because we line up for like mammograms <laughs> and colonoscopies and we have no problem with those, but something right. so simple, we can't get women to do it. So yeah, we, we have to just continue to tell people that. And that again, the, we also get a question about the radiation levels. And again, it's incredibly small, Reiner, right? Very, very low. It's like 0 0.003 millisieverts, which is, you know, like one uh, one hundredth of what you would get just kind of living on at sea level. Yeah. So yeah, it really isn't. Um, you know, it's funny that you should mention a massage because if you go to an endocrinologist and they check your thyroid, like I do, you might get a little bit of a neck massage uh, while you know while you're going to go check that. So that's a double bonus right there. There you go. All right, we are <laughs> all kinds of reasons for our listeners to get themselves a bone density test, or at least get themselves checked. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> that's right. We need to do more of that. We need to do more of that. You did mention something that that I forgot to mention as a risk factor, which is really important for men, and that's that this you know, and I know we'll talk about that a little bit, but this exercise, physical activity muscle mass strength, you know, I can't say with absolute certainty that it's more important for men mm. than for women, but certainly in, in a lot of the studies, observational studies, and some trials that we've done where we've looked at muscle mass and strength and fracture risk, it always seems to kind of pop up in men. I've done some of this work myself in the cardiovascular health study, and in women, while we, it, it, they're also good measures, mm -hmm. but not as strong an association as in men. So there are hints in the literature that physical activity and muscle mass may be more important for bone health 
for men. Interesting. Well, that's perfect because that's where I wanted to go next with you know your specific area of study on on men and and men and women and exercise and the importance of exercise because we do get an incredible amount of inquiries from everyone about what can I do to now that I know that I'm either at risk or now that I've been diagnosed and then also how do I prevent it in my children but for what we can do. And I think exercise and nutrition are those two areas where we can have some control over managing the disease. And, and people like that. And it's important. And it's also important, we, we tell people all the time, even the medical treatments don't work as well if you're not getting calcium and vitamin D and if you're not taking care of yourself you know, with exercise. So it really is part of the treatment plan. So can you talk a little bit about how you approach it with patients when you're looking at you know uh, the idea of exercise as a as a treatment for for bone loss that's so important it's a complicated question you know i i like to address it first as you know whatever you can do if you can do more do more in a safe manner that will always help right so bone is an active tissue it's not just a solid piece of mineral or stone that's in your body and it'll respond just like, you know, similar to other connective tissue like your muscle will respond, okay? We know very clearly, you know, you're not going to get big muscles if you're not pushing the exercise at least a little bit out of your comfort zone. So bone is, is very similar. You know, bone has interconnected channels inside that sense these shearing forces and also these compressive forces. So bone can feel what's going on and what you're doing to it, okay? Now, the bone will get a signal to grow or to become more dense only if it's pushed out of that comfort zone. Now, the problem is, how do we do this in a safe way in somebody that has osteoporosis and is at high risk for fracture? And I don't think we have a great answer to that. I think that if you are you know generally not very active becoming active that's a great first step go take your dogs for a walk go play with your kids or grandkids just do anything where you're moving around you know from an evolutionary standpoint we were meant to be hardy undergo all sorts of punishment and physical activity and then here we are nowadays you know we're all sitting in front of our computer working or doing you know other stuff and we go and we do uh, an exercise for half an hour and come back and then we're back and we're sedentary. And that's really not what we're designed for. That's not what's going to push that bone to grow. So I say level it up. You know, if you're, if you're a couch surfer, then get out there. Start walking. You know, just go to the park. Anything is, is better than, than not doing anything. If you're kind of walking, then start jogging. Or, you know, do a Zumba class, do where you're bouncing around a little bit. That is more compression and your bone is going to feel that. If you're lifting and you're lifting very controlled weights, get out of your comfort zone under supervision. That's the key point, you know, stay under expert supervision, you know, at least a trainer, somebody who's, who's not going to push you in ways that you feel uncomfortable, but that is going to help you. And do some free weights, you know, and so just... Try to go that next level because whatever, you know, people sometimes come to me and, and they might be actually quite physically active, you know, and they might be swimming and maybe walking, 
and they come to me and they say, but I'm already so active. Why isn't my bone better? There's two answers to that. Number one, maybe your bone would be worse if you weren't active, right? But then my other answer is, look, our bone and all our, all our body actually is constantly adapting to all of the forces that we place on it, right? So whatever you've been doing for years, you're adapted to already. It's very, and it's going to be safe for you. But if you want to get that little bit of extra bone density, maybe prevent that little bit of extra bone loss, then you have to feed the signals to your bone that kind of get it a little bit out of that comfort zone. So kind of switching up what you're doing is my best answer initially. In some people, you know, I've, and I've done this in, in my clinic, you know, and some people that, you know, I, I can tell are, are really dedicated to this and would like to do strength training as, as a part of their treatment, that's doable. Mm-hmm. You know, some Australian studies, the Lift More study in this group in Australia showed some really good results with actually sort of powerlifting techniques mm-hmm. in, you know, women 65 or, or older with osteoporosis, and they got some good bone density results. But sometimes people ask me about that kind of thing, and that's possible, but only in the setting of, we have to be very careful about that. Uh, only in the setting, you know, it has to be observed by somebody who's really kind of a specialist would be ideal. Somebody like a trainer or a physical therapist would be fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, we found too, I find this all fascinating. So I have a couple of questions about what we were just discussing, but I know that we also hear from, from patients that they can't find somebody who knows how to work with someone with osteoporosis. So on another podcast, we'll talk about the fact that we have a program that we're doing now training physical therapists and fitness professionals. It's called Bone Fit that we adopted from uh, Osteoporosis Canada, which will hopefully give us more people who do know the proper way to work with them. Because as you said, you need to be able to work with someone under medical supervision so you know exactly what is the right to do. But also, it's fascinating what you said, because I, there can so many people say to us, I've done everything right. I've been eating well. I do all of these things. Why is my bone density, you know, not going where I thought it would? And it's, it's like you said, it's because at that level of fitness, you might have to kick it up a notch to make your bone signal to it. But explain to me a little bit more about the bone signal. So is this signal a nervous signal? Like how does the... Like, like we said, the way our muscles get the repetitiveness, you know, that's how they do it. How, how does our movement signal? Is it a combination of muscle and nerves? What is that signal that's being picked up? So there is this mechanosensing hypothesis, okay, that's been around for, for decades. And what this mechanosensing hypothesis talks about is that bone will respond to the stresses that are placed on it, right? So there's an optimal efficiency in a certain range of stress that the bone will respond to. And that's been around for a while. And even before we knew about osteocytes, which are cells that are trapped in bone and that communicate throughout the cortex, the hard outer layer of bone. So now we know that a lot of these signals are actually coming from these osteocytes, which have this web of philopodia, of little finger-like projections all around the cortex of bone. And when you compress a bone, the fingers will come together and they'll feel that. And when there are shearing forces, like when you're doing a biceps curl or maybe when you're throwing an object, those fingers will come closer together and they'll feel that too. And some of these mechanisms we know 
how it occurs. We know that sclerostin is secreted by osteocytes, and we know that physical activity affects that. So that's one of the signals. But, and then obviously muscle tugs on bone and creates that shear stress and that compression stress, which these bone cells feel. So the osteocytes are kind of the effectors, the bone, the sensors, Mm -hmm. the mechanical sensors that are wrapped around that cortex. Now, there is definitely a neural signal as well. I think the best evidence for that is probably what happens in spinal cord injury. We've done a little bit of work on that, and the bone loss in spinal cord injury is far beyond anything that could just be attributed to not moving around or to unloading. Mm -hmm. And one of the best comparators are, uh, you know, astronauts in space. Right. You know, so they lose. Absolutely. They lo- they're they totally unloaded. I mean, not so much anymore because we're doing things to try and prevent that, especially now that we're thinking of Mars. Yeah. That's a separate conversation. But, you know, astronauts in space, originally, they lost a, a certain amount of bone. And what we lose in spinal cord injury is way beyond that. Wow. So we know that there is a neuronal, you know, a, a, that your neurons are involved in how your body decides to maintain bone or not exactly how it's it's hard to say you know it's it's a challenging group of people to study we're working on it but there is definitely a component there too so potentially these things that you've been doing for a long period of time you know you're already adapted to it your neurons are used to Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. when you get that shock yeah that's when your bone says oh wait something different is going on here let me adapt to it. It's very similar if we look at athletics, and I'm a big proponent of looking at how athletes do things. You know, there's an aside on on strongmen that I'd like to go into, but we can <laughs> we can we can go that afterwards. You know, it's amazing if you, if a human being can pull an airplane, we should be able to find a way to improve somebody's bone, you know, and strength. Right. right. But in any case, you know, if we look at athletic techniques. For muscle, people plateau, right? Yeah. So uh, if you do the same workout every single day for months, you're gonna plateau, and there's gonna be a point where your muscle gets optimally adapted to that, and it's not gonna grow anymore. It's exactly the same for bone. If you've been running and that's your thing, and you've been running all your life, and you're curious as to why your bone density isn't higher, it's because that adaptation happened long ago. You know, and your bone is perfectly happy there. Yeah. So we need to kind of shock the system to try and get that little bit of extra bone density. And then the question is, how do we shock the system in a safe way so that we don't injure you on the way to to trying to get better bone density? Well, it's like it's even even mentally trying to do exercise like that. Right. We get we get in a rut. You're doing the same thing. You become bored. You stop exercising. I may know something about this from personal experience. But um, you then, so again, the variety of that, it's like as if the, our bodies naturally need that variety and that spark. And as you were talking, I'm totally dating myself too, but I was thinking about, there was a cartoon when we were little, like Wonder Twins Activate, where they like smashed hands and then they could form into these different kinds of things with their superpowers. That's kind of like the bone thing, the bone and the muscle sort of, you have to get those fingers connected 
to make the impact and to get things going. I think that's some really incredible, wonderful visuals that you've just described about how bone actually builds itself and, and what's needed that I, I think we can do more as an organization to help people understand. So I really loved your description of that. It painted so many visual pictures for me of the mechanics of how this, this you know, physiological thing works. It's fascinating. And you know what's interesting, Claire, is that if people actually get out there and do these different types of exercise, you're going to see it. You're going to feel it. Right. You know, listen, my thing is, is lifting weights. I, I am, I am not a cardio person whatsoever. And my brother-in-law, uh, you know, I've moved to Boston now. My brother-in-law's here and he's like an endurance athlete. He just ran the Boston marathon. Wow. And I'm training him in weights. He's training me in running. Great. I do a three quarters of a mile and I am dying and I can feel my shins <laughs> reacting to, to that stress. Yeah. I'm deadlifting and, and squatting and my legs don't care. And I run, you know, less than a mile and they are screaming and yelling at me and I can tell they're adapting. You know? That's really interesting. Wow. 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 Yes. Yeah, the variety is so important. We're going to have to, this is again, so helpful. And I could spend another hour talking to you, but I know we've already kind of hit our time. So we will come up with other things, but this is, this is such an important, interesting area in so many levels. Like we said, the science of it and what's being studied and we're learning as an organization, we're learning more about that. And it's, I'm really excited about some of the things that, that we're working on with like the American college of sports medicine and with some of our other exercise experts like you and others that I think will really benefit our patients and our caregiver community moving forward. And so we'll have more on that in the future, but I hope everyone takes away from this that there is something we can all do to improve our bone health at every age, at every fitness level, that really it's an ongoing process of good health, as is anything. You know, that building overall health is a process and, and we have to kind of mix it up a little bit. So thank you so much, Dr. Valderrana, for being here with me again, talking about this important topic. I hope you all enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I did, uh, finding out all this great information. If you did, please do two things. Please like this podcast and share it with your friends and family so that they too can learn more about the importance of bone health. And we look forward to um, speaking with you in another episode of Bone Talk. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining Bone Talk, the bone health and osteoporosis foundations podcast that shares information, strategies, and inspiration about good bone health that makes active aging possible. To learn more about bone health, to become involved, and or help fuel BHOF's mission with financial support, visit bonehealthandosteoporosis.org.